just put the belt back behind me, which doesn't help me to remember to turn it on. And then I'm like, I have to look at it to know. Again, welcome to my brain. This morning, we come to the conclusion of a series I've, I've used, kind of outlined out of uh, The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer. Uh, you can see it's a pretty thin text, but it's pretty thick with meaning. And I'm actually um, kind of combining the last two topics he addresses, and that would be life and rest. And those how those things work together in the Christian life. Next Sunday, if you want to read ahead, um, if, if you, uh, let's see if I can find it here. Um, we're going to look at one of my favorite places to go, and that is the Minor Prophets. And if you turn to page 1190 in your Bibles, I'm just kidding. Anyway, we're going to be looking at, um, for a few weeks, it's not a, a lengthy text, but it's a, it's a prophecy born out of suffering and trial and exile. The exile of the, of the people of Judah in, in, uh, in Babylon and then into Persia, and that is the prophecy of Haggai or Haggai, or Haggai, or however you want to say it. My brain says Haggai, I'm sticking with it. And you'll get there to me with how, how I end up saying some different things with the passage we're looking today. But I like to look at the minor prophets along the way. The major prophets are, are obviously very important too, and, what they, and we tend to take those uh, prophecies in chunks because they're lengthy. But the minor prophets are, I call them like the pinch hitters on a baseball team. They go in at the moment that they're needed, they hit the ball, they run the bases, and they're gone. And so uh, Haggai is one of those prophets, and so I'd invite you to read ahead, and uh, you're always welcome and encouraged to do that uh, as we get there. And at the conclusion of Haggai, in the next several months, we're going to be going through Galatians. So I kind of like to bounce back and forth between the Old and the New Testament along the way. Um, I've taught through Galatians but I've not preached through Galatians, and uh, we will be looking at that. Um, so, but this morning, uh, we are going to look at a passage that many of you have probably heard about, you've probably done some Bible studies about, and it's a passage that use, that's used to, uh, to help train people on how to share their faith and evangelism. Um, it's, uh, it's a way that uh, the scriptures show us how to deal with different worldviews, and we're going to be in Acts chapter 17. And Acts, again, is one of those books that I've kind of taken in bits and pieces and chunks along the way. Um, as long as I've been using this Bible, and I've been using this Bible to preach out of for about five years, haven't addressed this passage. Uh, but Acts chapter 17, we see that Paul and his entourage are journeying through Greece and, uh, and the, the, the major cities of the area. They've, they've been to Berea, they've been to Thessalonica, uh, they've been to some other places along the way, and he finds himself in Athens. And uh, he, along, as he's journeying through Athens, finds some things to teach the Greeks about through their own pantheon. And that he uses the way they view the world in order to share about what God has done for us in Jesus. And, and really, much in, uh, many of the struggles we face in our lives today... Uh, it comes down to a matter of what, what I describe as worldview. It's how the world matters. And really, in, in the international conflicts that we face, uh, we think it's a conflict between nation upon nation, and a lot of times it's a conflict of different views of the world and how they, how they feel like they can conquer 
other nations and that they have some kind of rite of passage with that. And, and, and that breeds conflict in our world. So uh, today, we're actually in looking at Acts 17, which I, I, I kind of find funny in myself. It's not actually a passage that Tozer addresses in the final two chapters of this book at all. But as I was reading through it and as he was talking about life and rest, I, the passage, the verse I shared with the kids earlier, verse 28, came to my mind. And it kind of brought me around to looking at this passage this morning for how God is at work in our lives and how he brings us renewal and grace and even power in the life struggles we face. So let's turn to Acts chapter 17. We'll begin in verse 16. This won't be an in-depth uh, dive into this passage, but we're going to read the entirety of it and kind of dwell on how Paul addressed the, the, the Greeks, the Athenians here at this time. So I invite you to stand, and we're going to read verses 16 through 31. <clears throat> now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that you are close, that you care, and that you bring us life in your name. And may, as we look at your word today, be renewed in that life, or maybe even come to that, that place today to find our life in you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. It's an amazing passage, and it's a popular passage, like I said. 
as we look at evangelism. I think even some of your Sunday school material uh, visited some of these things along the way. Uh, I don't know whether I'm saying Areopagus correctly or Areopagus or Mars Hill or wherever you want to locate it. But this is where the Parthenon is. And this, this, um, this location is also the name of the council that listens to the arguments that are presented there. And so he comes before these wise men and these philosophers of the day, the Epicureans and the Stoics, were much like the, the in, in arguments at least, not necessarily in their belief, but they, they, were, they were almost two sides of the same kind of coin, where in, 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 the, in the clarity I understand in Scripture is between like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They come at the same texts with different ideas on how they're lived out. The, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection and the Sadducees did not. But they both claimed the Torah. And they both claimed that God was blessing their belief and it brought conflict within them. And in the Roman world and the Greeks here, they, they ran into the same thing between all these different philosophers. And remember, this is centuries after some of the most formative of the Greek philosophers. You get Aristotle and Plato and Socrates and all those, those guys along the way that were students of one another and, and learned and, and came up with their own ideas. So the, the Greek culture is one that would look at all kinds of ideas and try to pick out what they liked from it. Does that sound familiar? Sounds a whole lot like life in Western civilization. We can say in America, but I think even throughout the West you see that. And, and unfortunately, the conclusion that comes in, in those moments and those times is that people end up trying to understand things in themselves before they understand that there is someone who has a greater wisdom and a greater knowledge. And so when we come here, we see all these different uh, ways he's, he's conversing. And Paul's habit was first to go into the synagogues. His goal first, for a long time at least, was to go into the Jewish believers and preach Christ crucified as their Messiah. And to see the Jews first and then the Greek come to faith. You see that drawn out in Romans, right? You see that he is... That it is the power of salvation. So he starts with fulfillment in the synagogues. Now he ends up having some problems in the synagogues. And uh, a lot of times ends up dusting, the, 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 dusting off his feet as he leaves town and decides simply to go to the Greeks. But in this time, he does make that practice of going into the synagogue and teaching there. But then, as a preacher might, I don't know anybody like this, he has a problem stop talking at the end. He can't find that conclusion, and doesn't he realize that the line's getting long at Cracker Barrel? And that's on the other side of town anyway, people. You need to find some place closer to eat. So, no, what we see is that Paul keeps talking. As he leaves, he goes and he starts talking to the locals about this Messiah. Why? Because Paul knows his calling is as the apostle to the Gentiles. He wants to see everyone Come to faith in Christ. And what is the question? And, that, and I really resisted saying something about this when we came to the top, of, the top of the page for me in verse 17 and 18. It says, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Sometimes I wonder that about myself. He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Now, 
one of the conveniences, I won't say it's a good thing or a bad thing, but a convenience of the Greek pantheon and the Roman pantheon is that if, if one god didn't fit all their expectations, what could they do? They just made a new one. And so Paul has been wandering around. And you got Zeus, you've got, I'm going to start naming, you've got Athena that the town is named after, and you've got all these different things, and you've got the temple that's built to them. And Paul finds the one in the corner, buried, that says to an unknown God. Now, do you think that's the one that was front and center? No. That was the catch-all, just in case. We've made Mars upset with us. And, uh, you know, let, we, can, we can take that where we want to go. Let's have this one over here. Now, Paul's desire as he goes into this marketplace, as he goes into this place of discussion, is that he gets the chance to talk about Jesus. And so when he sees that little plaque, which he probably had heard about already, whether or not he had been to Athens already, not really sure, because he was a Roman, he could travel freely, he found this spot, and he said, that's, that's, my, that's my gateway in, into this conversation. This is how I can tell them about Jesus. So Paul, he says, in the standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens. He compliments them, and he says, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now, a lot of us could take some lessons from how Paul introduces himself to this crowd. Because he, even though he's about to, to switch it, he starts out saying, you guys are pretty good fellows. When he knows that pretty quickly they're not going to be happy with him. But he says, you're very religious. And yeah, <laughs> yes, as a matter of fact, we are. And imagine just the visual here, because Paul's a Jew. He's a Christian, but, I mean, he's Jewish. He's not dressed in a toga, more than likely. But think about how he would look different than those who are listening to him. You got this brainiac little Jew talking to all these very proper Romans about the things that they believe. He tries to, to distance it, but everybody has his attention because he's saying some different things in a different way. And, as it, and I think if you would even go back to how Jesus was perceived, what did they say about when Jesus spoke? He spoke as one with authority. I do believe that Paul carries that manner of authority because of the Holy Spirit. And so when Paul speaks, it's something different. And he says, I perceive you're very religious. I pass along the serve the, observe the object of your worship. I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Wherefore, what therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. And he goes into Genesis. But he doesn't say he goes into Genesis. He speaks truth to them without, by by proclaiming what he knows to be real. To the God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not serve by human hands. 
as though he needed anything. So he's saying this unknown God is different than the ones you worship. What did the, what did the Romans and the Greeks spend time doing? Trying to appease these deities to see that Zeus wouldn't zap them. Okay? Now God, uh, Paul is saying this God that we serve doesn't need any of the stuff you think he needs. He is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all to mankind, to all mankind, life and breath and everything. That goes back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he created man and breathed life into humanity. And it says in Genesis 1.26, as I mentioned earlier, that he, he said uh, to, to who was present, and then we believe that in, in our thought to be Trinitarian thought, let us create man in our image, Father and Son and Spirit. It's the first picture we have of the Trinity. He is the one who breathes life into humanity. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. So you look at all of those different spots, and you can basically see the first 10, 15 chapters of Genesis. Right? You can see that he's drawing that together here. What is it that he wants them to do? God wants them to seek him and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, that's your viewpoint, but this is what is actually true. And in this, he draws a picture of where that life comes from. In him, in verse 28, we live and move and have our being. And even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Now, Paul uses their text at that point here. A commentator named uh, Kenneth Gangle, I think that's how you say that. That's going to say that a lot today. I think that's how you say that. It says, the first part of verse 28 comes from the Credica by Epimenides, and the second part of the verse from Hymn to Zeus, written by a Sicilian poet, Eratus. To be sure, both of these lines were directed at Zeus in Greek literature, but Paul applied them to the creator of whom he spoke. So in five short verses, Paul affirmed that God made the world, God gave all people life, God controlled the nations, and God revealed himself so people would seek him. As a result, quite possible, for he is both transcendent and imminent. So he uses their own understanding and applies it to the truth of the gospel. And so many times, we do get chances to do that. We can look at something we're going through and something that people might believe and say, you know what, God created that in you, that desire for eternity. And I can think of people I've seen speak in funerals who say, just carte blanche, that, you know, now that person is looking down upon us. don't usually jump on people in the funeral about that, but if you want to have a conversation afterwards, I'd like to. Because as it says in Hebrews, there is a great cloud of witnesses that's gone before us that cheers us on to fulfill the gospel. When we pass, there is no promise in Scripture that we would become a guardian angel looking down upon somebody else. It's just not there. What it does say is that the Spirit is with us if we trusted Christ as our Savior. And that that person, if they trusted him too, is living their reward in heaven with Jesus. That is the hope of forever. 
And I remember somebody, my dad was a great guy, and, and he was a believer. He led me to Christ. And, and somebody saying after he passed away to my mom, oh, no, but it's what my mom said, uh, that she, she made a decision about something that was now her decision to make. And she said, don't tell your dad. And then she ca- carries it on with this. She's an intelligent lady. She says, not that he's worrying about that anyway. That's the truth of the gospel, is that we are redeemed in Jesus so that when we have placed our trust to him, we come in his presence then, and we receive the reward of his salvation. That is worshiping him. What is that going to look like? You can look at Revelation and see some interesting things. The fact is, is that we're not there yet, but I guarantee it's going to be amazing and it's going to be nothing like what we're going through here. God has things set aside for us to do that bring him glory, that are perfectly redeemed, untainted by sin. And so the hope that we have, the hope that he offers here to the, the, um, to the, to the people on Mars Hill, the Areopagus, Areopagus, whatever terminology you want to use for it, is that life and that rest that we have in Jesus. The life we find in his name is that we were dead in our sin, and through Christ we find forgiveness and new life in his name. We have never in ourselves been righteous before God. We are racked with sin, and we need a Savior as does the world, which is the commission the church has given to go and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And in that life that we find in his name, we also find something called rest. You see, without Christ, our lives are in constant turmoil. And the labor never ceases. We are constantly trying to, to prove we're good enough to someone, if not God, but usually to God. We're trying to prove that we are good enough. But friends, when you compare it to the standard, it's never going to happen. In Christ, we are redeemed. Christ pays the price for our sin. And in Him, we find life in His name. And in Him alone, He proclaims, He declares this. This is not theory. And that's one of the things that Tozer addresses in in here is that as we look at a passage like Matthew chapter 11, which we're going to go to right now, we see that God gives us something that we cannot attain to ourselves. It is in Him a gift. Chapter 11, this is a familiar verse for probably almost all, all the people in this room. And if not, welcome. It says, he says to his listeners, this is the words of Jesus, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Now, some of you might be confused about what a yoke is. A yoke is the device that they put over the oxen to put two of them together that they might go in the same direction and whoever the driver is can guide them where they need to be. And and it's burdensome because what does the oxen want to do? 
whatever it wants to. And that's why the yoke is there, to guide them where they need to be. And so the burden is heavy upon them because they're pulling the plow, they're pulling whatever is behind them. They've got whatever big old guy that didn't want to walk it, he's going to be in there too. And I don't know anybody who'd be big and weighing down an oxen like me. You know. But what we see is that what Jesus gives us then, how he guides our lives, he is actually the one who brings us the rest in that labor. You see, in this life, we will always be cursed with work. Not that work is a curse. I'm not saying that. I'm not telling you to go quit your job. Although some of you just did this week. We'll talk about this retirement thing. about too many people. Anyway, no, what we see is that we are called to the task of the gospel. And the proclamation of the gospel is real work. You have to decide to do it. It's not something that happens accidentally. You have to, in ourselves, we tend to go whatever way we want to go. In Christ, we find and we follow him. We have to decide to follow Jesus. And that's some work. But when we rest and depend on him, he renews us in that task. So that very thing that's the work is also the renewal. You get where I'm coming from here? When you are obedient to Christ, he energizes you for what he has called you to do in this life. And in him, we find rest. And now most of us would think of rest as what we would do on our pillows at night. But really the kind of rest Jesus talks about is the rest of salvation. That he has completed the work already. If you read Hebrews, and we've been in Hebrews in this study, if you read Hebrews, that's what it's all about, is finding our rest and salvation in Christ alone. His burden is easy. His yoke is light. Maybe I got that backwards. His yoke is light, his burden is easy. You get the point. Something that we receive, though, we receive his salvation. Now, going back to Acts chapter 17, Matthew Henry, another quote I found in there, he said, the apostle ever dwelt upon two points, which are indeed the principal principal doctrines of Christianity. I didn't think I was going to have problems with those words. Christ and a future state. Christ, our way, and heaven, our end. And the hope of the gospel, eternity is central. It's not just about following the right rules. It's about realizing that when we trust Christ, he gives us eternity. We have the hope of salvation forever. And we're going to run into problems in this life. And you know, and, and being now, and some of you are going to go, but being in my mid-40s, I'm running into a lot more bodily problems than I used to. My mom had a mug. I've mentioned her a couple times now. My mom had a mug, and I remember her turning 40. And it said, after 40, it's patch, patch, patch. I don't know what happened to that mug. I think it's probably in storage somewhere. I may claim that at some point. But that, that's the kind of thing we run into. The longer our lives here in, on earth, are here on earth, the more problems we're going to face in our body. 
Some of you say amen and affirm that to everything right now. But the fact is, is that the longer we endure life here on earth, the better prepared God has us for glory. Because the work of the pursuit of God is one of sanctification. If we have placed our trust in Jesus Christ, then every step after that is a point where God draws us to become more and more like him. And what does that look like? That looks like praying for people around the world who are suffering for their faith. That looks like praying for healing for those who are suffering physically in our lives right now. That looks like your neighbor who needs Christ living that out in a way that proclaims the gospel to them. And sometimes they may not like it. But Paul sets the example, sets the tone for us as he gets the opportunity to share. He says, in him alone we live and breathe and have our being. The rest he offers us renews us for the journey that is before us. Tozer says along the way in here, the rest he offers is the rest of meekness. Heard that word before, that is out of the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the meek. The blessed relief which comes when we accept ourselves for what we are and we cease to pretend. We try to make ourselves pretty along the way. But here's the deal. I know for me, at least, is that I've got to try again later. I can't make myself as pretty as I once thought I could. There's nothing up here. And this used to be red. It's not anymore. And do I get the just for men? No, because it'll look very fake. No, we, but what we see is that we try to make ourselves prettier for everybody else around us. Actually, we're just fooling ourselves. The fact is, is that God loves you just the way you really are. And I'm not against looking nice, and I'm thankful that some people you know, work harder than others. Because, and I'm, I, I try, and I'm sorry for what you have to look at. And I wish I could make it better for you. But, you know, there, there's these things along the way. We try to make ourselves better, but God loves you where you are as you are. But he loves you too much to leave you there. He transforms us by the renewing of our mind. What does that mean? It goes back to verse 28, how he speaks to the Greeks here. He says, in him we live and breathe and move, and have our being. We are indeed his offspring. Friends, you are a, the precious creation of God. I'm not going to say A. You are the precious creation of God. Christ would have died for you if you're the only one, it's been said. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. We find our life, we find our hope in Him. And while we might find fulfillment in the temporary things of this life, whether it's parenting, whether it's a job, whether whatever it may be, we will never be at full rest until we're in His presence. Because that's what it's all about, is that He longs, us to, longs for us to seek Him. In our humbleness and our humility, we find his life. And I actually wrote this part down. I'm going to read this. I don't know whether it's any good or not. You can tell me later. At once, at one time, the saved person realizes he is weak, broken, and humiliated. Yet, 
deeply loved and cherished by the Creator. It's a paradox that's difficult to fathom. It is. It's hard to come to the place of understanding how much God loves us. But that cross is the evidence of it. He pays the price for our sin that we might find life in his name. And so this example that we see of Paul here, taking the opportunities that are before him, let's do that as we go from here this day. So I ask you, do you know that rest that comes alone in Jesus? We're never going to have perfection in this life, but you can find rest. And that's him. Because he has done the work that you can't. He saves you when we're spending all this time trying to save save ourselves. And this is not the difference between the hand up and the hand out. This is he picks us up and makes us residents of a place we never belonged in in the first place. If you know Christ, you're in him for eternity. So do you know him today? The old hymn says, do not turn him away. Let's pray. God, you are good. You are faithful. I thank you for how you love us. I thank you for your provision for us. And I pray now, Father, that you would encourage us to, uh, to, to trust in you. To realize our place before your throne. That we are loved. We are forgiven redeemed. May we live our lives as a blessing to you. Lord, I I preach this to me as much as to anyone else. Be reminded of your goodness and your faithfulness. That in the trials of this life, whether they be health, whether they be relationships, whether they be political, whatever it may be, that you redeem us and let us find our hope in you. In Jesus' name. Stand together. The altar's open.